Hi, everyone. So welcome to the Bunny Chronicles podcast. So today I am so excited to bring in this amazing guest. Uh, her name is Milk, aka Connie Leem. So to give you a quick introduction of who Milk is, uh, she is an Asian American recording artist. Her song Quiet, which was released in 2016, went viral when she performed with a group of women during the historical Women's March the day before Trump's inauguration. That song would be named by Billboard Music as the protest song of the year in 2017. She has since launched her website, ICan'tKeepQuiet.org, which brings awareness to gender-based violence and to establish a fund to support other women-led organizations. Milk was signed to Atlantic Records after the march, and she has appeared on NPR's Tiny Desk concert. And Earlier this year, Milk released her five-song EP, Into the Gold, which is now available on all streaming services. So, Milk, I want to say thank you so much for being on here today. How are you doing in this uh, COVID-19 climate that we're in? Thank you for having me. Um, this is a great intro. Um, appreciate it. And uh, I, am, I am doing, you know, I'm going to say I'm doing really well. And I will say I'm doing really well because... I am learning a lot. I'm learning about the world. I'm learning about U.S. history. I'm learning about my own strengths and weaknesses. I think in a time of quarantine, when we are left to just ourselves and our own thoughts, um, we have a lot of time to get to know ourselves, or we have the chance to run from ourselves. And mm. I. I'm taking as much of the moments as possible that I can handle to really face who I am from like identifying the side of me that likes to wallow, you know, and I was just showing you an illustration before the podcast started, like making a little playful illustration of my wallowing side and calling it wallowing Winnie, you know, and like acknowledging, mm -hmm. Hey, there's a side of me that gets blue and sometimes wants to sink into the couch, and just turn into a pillow, you know, but, um, it, it feels healthy to acknowledge that, um, I have these sides and that I have the chance to honor those sides and then move forward from them. And if they visit again to just, I know how to kind of put them, at the dinner table, feed them a little meal so I can like mm. go on with my day. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good way of to stop and acknowledge and process these uh, many multitudes of feelings, especially during the pandemic when what we see on the news, when we're seeing the death count continue to climb, uh, yeah. how we interact with folks outside and digitally has been a, been a total revamp. And and in just the obvious stress that's going on in the civil rights movement and the uh, anti-Asian racism that we've been experiencing in our own communities mm -hmm. and also the upcoming election, which is clearly heightening a lot of attention. So there's so many anxiety and all these different feelings that are coming yes. in. So I was curious as to, uh, like, before the pandemic hit, uh, what was 2020 going to look like for you as an artist? Uh, were you looking to do a tour behind the uh, EP album that you just released? It's funny you ask that. I don't think anyone has asked me that. And so thank I thank you for, for asking, because it's almost like this um, opportunity to be cathartic of like, so this was supposed to happen and it didn't. Um, 
but I, you know, uh, jokes aside, um, I released the Into Gold EP that I had been working on for almost two years. Just like the process of whittling down to five songs. I wrote 70 songs and we chose five and recorded those five and, and then put the EP out. My, my goal was to just tour as much as possible, perform live, because that's my favorite. I just love... I just love the grueling, tiring, energizing, and visceral experience of touring. And so I was working my butt off to get on some tours and, um, yeah, to get out there and share the music. And um, when the song, when when the EP came out, I was able to fit in one show, and then pandemic happened, and then mm. everything stopped. And then, then I quickly was went into like okay how do how can I perform virtually so I went into a whole virtual thing but um my original intentions were really to to be out and to be meeting people and sharing the story of of into gold and what it means to me and um and I think the there I had to mourn that and and then I also had to like I had to mourn the fact that those things were not going to happen and then I also had a moment of gratitude that what I was mourning was not a loved one or, you know, my house or, you know, it was, it was a celebration of an EP. So, so looking at that, that I was like, okay, I'm really grateful that, that I have the opportunity to still have a house and like be alive. And it just really snapped me into the now because you asked me what was my plan for 2020 and like the way I looked at it was like, go, just go, go, go. But then when that go, go, go is gone, it was almost as if I was halted and I had to look at why, why am I go, go, going? Like, what is the point of that? What am I trying to prove? What am I trying to fulfill? Um, and one is out of joy. And then there's also another side, which is the shadow side of, wanting to feel worthy or wanting to feel useful through my actions and not having that then i'm sitting in my apartment quarantined with my roommate and we both were like okay without our go 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 to define who we are who are we you know so i think it's healthy it was a healthy thing a hard thing but definitely it's i feel like i'm much better in knowing how to be in the moment now um, and how to balance um, play with work, like life with work, and how to balance resting and gratitude and ambition. What 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 is the balance between gratitude and ambition? During the uh, beginning of the quarantine, uh, you had struggled. Well, you had struggled for several years as an artist uh, before. Uh, the song quite came out mm -hmm. did you feel re-triggered by that like oh my gosh am I going to struggle all over again mm. uh, during the time of the pandemic because you're not touring you have to you're not sure if you're ever going to be out on the road to make a living and you know obviously the economy was already starting to struggle so I was curious if that actually uh, uh re-triggered these past mm. memories when you were struggling to uh get in front of record labels yeah that's a really um insightful question i would say that before quiet went viral um 
a few months before that, my management dropped me um, and I had no management and I was just on my own. In one way, I was super energized because it would, I, I think I just do well in a crisis and I do, and I kind of operated from the quote, I will show them unquote energy, you know, and I, as a rebel, as a black sheep, I know how to harness that energy. Um, and I think this time felt different because it felt similar in that I felt like there's a lot I couldn't control. Like when I was younger, there was just, I couldn't control if someone looked at me and said they didn't see an Asian American ever making it in the music industry. I couldn't control that. I couldn't control how people perceive me. Um, this time was like, I couldn't control the fact that like I could perform or tour. Um, but I did feel like this time I had more comfort because, um, the community that has surrounded the song quiet and the work that I've done has been supportive. So I felt like I had like a little digital family that I could turn to or, you know, show, um, new music to or do virtual performances for. Um, but it definitely made me feel that um, question of like, what is my worth, you know? Um, but being older now, I know that the question, the answer does not lie in what I accomplish. So it was just like a graduation of, uh, of questions, you know, a graduation of like, okay, what am I worth? I'm worth everything now, regardless of what happens around me. So it was less of this panicked hunger for acceptance. It was just a, okay, I just got to make sure I'm not going to, um, you know, fall off the edge from depression or, you know, just make sure that I am sta stable enough to s subsist through all of this unknown. I'm grateful for, you know, I signed with a major label and getting the resources to be able to make the art but also to survive and i'm not one to like need to buy a ton of stuff like i'm pretty i live pretty simply so i was grateful for that so that i had i didn't spend everything right away you know so i had i had a little of cushion um so yeah and Growing up, uh, when did you realize that singing was your passion, that this was going to be your main focus? Because as an Asian American, as we all know, um, to seek a career that's outside of being a lawyer, a doctor, a scientist, uh, is in a way discouraged. So I was wondering about that whole pathway of when you started to become a singer and did your parents actually encourage you to you to use it as a hobby and did they see the talent that you were developing as you got older um yeah that's a great question and i when you asked as you were asking me that i was really like trying to go back to what it felt like when i was in high school or when i was in college and really struggling with the choice that i knew i was going to make it's interesting because I knew that my parents wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something of that sort, right? Be a doctor, a lawyer, or a doctor. Like those are your options. And so I knew that if I chose what I actually wanted to choose, that it would 
cause a lot of disappointment and heartbreak in my family. It was really difficult. I spent, I think I knew in my heart of hearts in high school that I wanted to be a singer and I wanted to be an artist because art is one of the few places where I can get lost in it for hours and I feel completely present in my body. I don't feel anxious. Like I was like, oh, this feels good. And I could do it for so long. Whereas when I opened up the LSAT book to study for law school, it was like ten, five minutes and I was like, you know, nodding off, falling asleep. So I knew that this was a path for me. I was curious. I was already reading books about, you know, poets going off and traveling and trying to find their way. I read The Alchemist and, and you know, just was curious. I was like, is it possible? Is it possible to reach for these dreams? Like, and I just, I had this insatiable curiosity and Anais Nin is this amazing writer and she has a quote talking about how at one point when the flower is blooming, it's like too painful to stay a bud. And it's actually, it, it would, even if it's scary and it hurts to unleash the petals and blossom into a flower, staying in the bud is cramped and just I had that. I had to push myself to that limit. And then by my third year of college, I finally, you know, told myself first, like, all right, this is what you're doing. You're going to write music for, and you're going to pursue this thing called art. Um, and I had to call my parents. I still, I remember exactly where I was. It's one of those like seminal moments. I was in my college apartment I had a roommate and she was, you know, in her bunk bed and I was in mine and I was, I remember pacing, um, you know, in my dorm room and deciding or apartment and deciding to call my parents. And I told them, you know, and, and it, it was a question, they questioned my decision for years. Um, mm -hmm. and it was hard for me to go back home because, you know, out of their knowledge of how to love me, they constantly challenged my decision that was already so hard for me to make. Um, so it, I would be exhausted after going home because I'd come, you know, I'd go visit my parents and we'd have dinner and it'd just be an interrogation of what I'm not doing or what I should be doing. And my dad said, you get a year, you get a year to prove that you can make it. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, in my head, I was like, well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'm going to take that year. And I just stretched it to about seven years until quiet wow. went viral. <laughs> but I would wow. just, you know, and it's interesting because because I, I didn't fully free myself of their expectations and it impacted my art. And I don't have any regrets because that was just the process I needed to go through because I have people pleasing tendencies. Um, I wanted to show my parents I made the right decision. So I ended up chasing these shiny opportunities that it was almost as if I kept wanting to flash my resume to my parents and be like, see, see, I made the right choice. See, I can do this. And that is harmful to an artist mm -hmm. because it's results driven practice and results driven practice is not fun at all and creates mediocre art because you're, because it's not natural and I'm not in the moment. And so when I let go of that um, was when I made the artist name Milk. And so, you know, you shared with me a bit of why you called your, your podcast Bon Me. And for me, and you have a story behind that about the depth of, you know, 
the intersections of your culture with American culture or Western culture. And for me, milk is me turning my name inside out, like Connie Kimberly Lim, C-K Lim. And so Lim is spelled backwards as M-I-L. And then with CK is Connie Kimberly. And I wanted to take what my family gave me and make something new, Mm. make it work for myself, almost like a third, it's a third culture action. And so I didn't even have a name. I learned about the term third culture like last year. Um, And, and uh, for me, I, I made this move and this decision in about 2015, where I was like, I have to stop trying to prove to other people that I made the right choice because art dies in that position, like in, in good art does at least. So I needed to free myself. And then I started going to therapy and I started to release myself of the guilt and shame that I felt for disappointing my parents. Um, and you know, it goes deeper because I was sexually assaulted when I was younger, but my the culture, some of the traditional Asian culture, it's so tricky to talk about this because I don't want to bash my culture, but I also want to acknowledge some of its, um, the rooms where our, the room that for improvement that our culture has in this modern day, right? Some of the inability to, to acknowledge, um, the harm that can happen to a woman and it not being her fault is some of the slut shaming culture. And Amanda Nguyen talks about this a lot is there's, there's a tends to be that traditional slut shaming culture in Asian culture. And my parents didn't intend to do that, but it happened and we were all learning. So I don't blame them. It was, we all, you know, just recently acknowledged that none of us understood what was going on. So that happened to me when I was 14 like 20 years later, our family's still trying to heal and process from that. Uh, looking back, uh, when you're going into the music industry, Asian Americans, especially in this industry, are very rare. I mean, growing up, I wanted to become a journalist. Uh, and I did not see very many people that looked like me and or look like us, for that matter. Yeah. And mirrors are very important in this, too, because... Because yes, you can sing, but for the music industry, which is very white-led and very patriarchal, um, you are constantly trying to have to prove your identity that yes, I can sing in English. I mean, or I can be taken seriously <laughs> as as an English-speaking performer. So that there's so many barriers to how. Um, when you are going into this air in, into this field, you are one of the very few, if not, um, they're, they're, they're still doing this work. So what kept you going, you know, after year after year, after not getting notice from record labels or having to, I would assume performing cafes and, um, yeah. places where it feels very defeating. Cause I know like when I listened to one of your podcast interviews, you had to perform in hotel lobbies oh. and and to you know not perform really in front of an audience but to just perform just to perform how uh close were you to saying you know what maybe i might have to take a different direction maybe music is just a side gig or a ho- or a hobby for that matter rather mm. than as a career um yeah that's a great question um you know, my story of graduating college, 
and then getting my first like viral moment in 2017 it took me nine years so (laughs) in in that process um when i hit about six years i started feeling like all right i'm i've been doing this for six years and i see little successes here and there i was starting to write songs for film and tv once in a while like get like a song on a show or something like that um on like lifetime or something like that i'm like oh okay so there were like bits of encouragement and i would Mm -hmm. follow those signs of encouragement um i was constantly hungering to know what i could learn now with when 2000 14 came about i had rate i had done uh, launched a kickstarter campaign and i raised thirteen thousand dollars to make my own album and i was so excited like that was the most money i've ever seen in my life like in one time you know as an artist and his fans from all over the world supported and donated and what i did was i allowed for this emotionally manipulative manager to tell me what to do with the money it was money that I had raised, but I gave the power to an external source, a manager to tell me where to spend it. Cause I had a choice. I made the $13,000. I could have bought my recording equipment or I could have hired a producer. And I took the latter route. I didn't invest within myself because I was like not fully believing in myself. Mm. I, and then I let the manager kind of bully me into working with a producer that I didn't really feel connected to. So I didn't like the whole album. And it was like this depressing thing. Like here I am six years in, I made a complete album and I just don't even relate to it. I don't want to listen to it. And um, I felt really defeated. And I looked at that moment. I said, why do I feel so defeated right now? And I feel so something feels off. And I, and I felt ashamed because I abandoned myself. And I said, I need to try this again without abandoning myself. I need to try to do this in a way where I'm owning myself and not letting others push me around. Because that same manager was the one who told me, like, maybe I should go back to China and, and make it out there because, you know, there's no Chinese artists out here. And, you know, back then, in, that was, what, 2013? But it was, ex- it was relatively expected and accepted to hear stuff like that come at us, right? Um, uh, and so was it going to, was it going to be performed in English or in Mandarin? (laughs) Yeah, there was no, like, I was like, well, I speak Cantonese kind like I, and I, but I don't know how to read or write it, but I, you know, it was just a whole thing. Like I didn't want to go back to China to do. It's also diaspora too. I mean, it's like, are you going to be taken seriously over there, especially to a place that you have not had the emotional connection to right yeah exactly and i i just felt i and i didn't have an emotional connection to living there i love my heritage but i i want to build a life here because this is my home america and so i decided um to switch my perspective and at that time i had fallen in love my ex he he encouraged me he's an amazing guy he encouraged me to not look at the result but look at the process and enjoy the process and focus back on what I'm learning. And he was like, you know, 
he was a doctor. He is a doctor. And he would, he'd get so excited when I perform at hotel lobbies. Oh, wow. He'd be like, oh my gosh, can you teach me how to wrap the cables? And he, and like, we made it fun. We're like, okay, we're, I'm going to like, it's going to be so much fun to like, for me, I told myself every time I was unpacking and packing my keyboard at the hotel lobby, I remember this too. I'd like drag in my keyboard and there's people eating and salmon, you know, in the, <laughs> in the restaurant. And I'm like unpacking my keyboard. I said, this is my prayer. This is my, 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 um, my gratitude. I'm expressing gratitude through each motion of unpacking the piano, of putting up my piano stand, putting the keyboard on the keyboard stand. Every motion is a prayer and a sense of gratitude towards this art form that has given me so much joy. Every moment, even from pressing the keyboard, like just pressing one note, the hearing the sound come from that and hit my body is like, that's what I have gratitude for. That's what got me through because if I look at the results, if I look at the career, if I look at the industry, I mean, I don't really fit in any of the boxes they have in the industry. They like scratch their heads even now of how to market me. And, you know, but I, I focus back on the small moments and the gratitude. And I, I love what, I love this gift, you know, um, what a wonderful thing to be alive and to be able to express. And, um, it saved me from my depression and anxiety as a kid. So yeah, I think for me, I just started turning every little thing into a prayer, like making everything sacred, you know, even learning how to record in a new software. I was like, all right, here's, here's time, time to open like Ableton. I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but it's going to be a little prayer, you know? Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because two years ago, I went to visit Prince. Uh, I'm a big Prince fan, so I went to Paisley Park uh, on mm, that tour. And one of the things that I was told is when we went into one of his studios, he would not allow anyone to come inside when he's recording. Uh, he was his own audio engineer. And from mm. what I've been told is that his recording studio is a sacred place for him. And most people who have worked with them have no idea how many songs he recorded or edited in that space, but he wanted to be left alone. So I think that what you just shared is music is a very intimate affair. It's a very personal, visceral feeling that you have when, I mean, I'm not a musician, but you know, being with friends who are musicians, they talk about the process of creating and the, the connection that they have with the instruments, the audio recording, the, mm -hmm. the, the love, the equipment. So it's, it's a very personal uh, relationship that they have. And um, yeah. yeah. And so, which also leads me to the transition of the song quiet. Uh, we had uh, just talked about earlier. Uh, we're also at the four year mark of that song. And this was a song that was performed at the Women's March the day before Trump's inauguration. And I remembered uh, a day afterwards, I ran into one of my friends' uh, Facebook feed and I saw your impromptu performance with a group of uh, women who joined you. And hearing that song, I still well up every time I hear that song. And as a cisgender male, mm. um, I may not relate, personally relate to uh, sexual violence that women and men have uh, gone through, but 
there was something that was so comforting about that song, especially when Trump is set to begin his four-year term. And, and it was a very frightening time for so many of us who don't identify as a straight white male, right? And mm-hmm. So I remembered how powerful that song was, not just for myself, but a lot of my friends who had heard the song and mm-hmm. to hear this comforting, soothing sounds and togetherness of, of the women who were there at the march is very powerful because you saw the impact of the women's march. Uh, you see that there was unprecedented amount of women who were and LGBTQ folks who were running for public office for the first time as a result of the Women's March, the emergence of the Me Too movement. And, and seeing what the song has done for you, what is your relationship now with Quiet in the past four years? Mm, thanks for saying all that. I, um, that song um, is, I think that song took my entire lifetime to cook up it was like a really slow cook um, because my whole life I had been told to either be quiet or um, I was assumed that I was quiet because I am Asian and there's a stereotype that we are quiet. Um, and one of the main reasons why that song came out of me specifically, I think why the universe had me channel this song is because of the Asian American experience. And I think that story gets lost And again, it's very interesting in interviews. Most interviews I'll say, I'll I'll say this song is about my story as a woman and as an Asian woman and as a survivor. And I always talk about those three things. And I think because the dialogue about being a survivor was so big in 2018 with the Me Too movement really coming to the surface, with Toronto Burke starting it years ago, but then, you know, Alyssa Milano bringing it forward into the mainstream with her tweet, um, that the Asian American side of that story has really been uh, not spoken about too much. Um, but I love talking about that because it's a big part of why I wrote it. It's There's a sense of expectation of silence, um, especially as an Asian woman, and um, I just couldn't take it anymore. Like, just couldn't take it anymore. And it felt the same way as when I was watching Trump get elected. Mm-hmm. I was like, I just can't take this, this um, hatred that's bubbling up to the surface of this country anymore. And um, as I, this, the song is a, forever will be a gift to me and forever teaches me and reminds me to not stay quiet um, for any matters and I think this song is taking on a new meaning because when I released a song the song was to not keep quiet for myself and my story and to really declare who I am and it's been four years so I've been maturing and coming into my own and as I've come into my own I've needed less to um, make it about me it's about other people and with the movement that has sparked um, I mean the movement's been going on for centuries, but with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, and their murders, um, bringing the anti-racist and anti-blackness conversation to the surface of mainstream media, um, this song, Quiet, reminds me, you can't keep quiet now either. Like, 
And as an Asian woman, there's a couple of things like a Asian person actually, you know, is um, one, I have to catch up on black history. And two, I also have to catch up on my own history because there's a lot of experience amongst Asian Americans where we erase ourselves in order to fit the um, uh, Western patriarchal paradigm. Um, and some of us don't even realize we're doing it. Um, and for a lot of the times I felt like I, 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 I passed, you know, I, I was able to be in spaces where it's predominantly white and not have to fear for my life. Um, and I had to understand that privilege. And so quiet to me is like, I can't keep quiet about my own, my own life and my own voice. I can't quiet that voice. And I also can't keep quiet for the sake of other people. And I think that's really interesting to me as a woman at, I, you know, people say 34 years old, I'm level 34. I like this like transcendence <laughs> narrative, but as a level 34, I, I really, I really ha find it interesting um, in serving others. And so, you know, I've been thinking about tears shed for myself are, are reasonable and important, but tears shed for someone else are sacred. And, and, um, that's that's what the song means to me now. I'm really trying to understand how much more I can, how much deeper I can dig in to 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 learn and and stand next to my brown and black brothers and sisters. Thank you so much for sharing this. And uh, looking back on the song, what was the response or the connection been like with Asian American women? Um, because often, like before you performed the song it was hard to find uh, highly prolific Asian women that were speaking on this until, until the uh, Me Too movement. But I was wondering what that, uh, your relationship has been like in connecting with API women. Mm. There's just been more conversation and more interaction um, and more open conversation. I think there's a couple of levels of healing, right? Everything is so intersectional, but the Me Too movement really helped women in general heal our relationships between each other. Uh, we are often taught that we're catty, competitive, that we're not supportive of each other, but that's not the truth. And so that level of healing between women in general was really prevalent with my relationships with Asian women. Um, less of that... Uh, you know, mistrust or distance or, 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 you know, formality was there between Asian women. Like we really are starting to talk more deeply about even like how we perceive ourselves in um, a white dominated society. Uh, those conversations weren't really at the surface, you know? So, and I think women, Asian women have come up to me in shows thanking me for singing out about this because it gives them space to find their own voice and um and uh i that's probably one of the deepest honors that i get is when i when i meet a fellow sister asian sister who tells me that the song gave them space to find their own strength that's the coolest thing yeah and also piggybacking up of what you mentioned in the aftermath of the george floyd brianna taylor uh and the Black Lives Matter movement, how do you see yourself positioning yourself to be 
better as an artist speaking on these social justice issues. I know you had just alluded to that already, but uh, but going further on that, uh, I wonder about the responsibility of how to use your platform or you know, sharing your platform uh, with other black and brown uh, performers or uh, activists and, and what have you, because now that you've already gotten into a more national profile since the song, how do you balance that? How do you work through those responsibilities, especially as we continue to see more movements emerge uh, through the Trump administration? I love that you asked that because that is something that I ask myself um, often. And um, I think the approach that I'm taking is to continue to care and to continue to show up and read the news and care. And naturally, as a songwriter, as artists, we absorb the things we care about and it naturally impacts the things we write. And so um, I'm about to be releasing a song called Somebody's Beloved um, that is about the lives of the loved ones we have lost due to systemic racism. And it really centers on the Black American story. And um, I wrote, it was really interesting because I was watching Breonna Taylor's mother speak on a CNN interview and I just started bawling. Mm. And all of a sudden a song just came through me. These verses came like, she was somebody's daughter, somebody's friend, someone who lit, built her dreams with every breath whom others could depend more than a number, more than a story, more than a memory, somebody's friend, somebody's daughter, somebody's beloved. And that verse flew out of me and I was like, I was actually afraid of it because I was mm. like, am I going to literally center my non-Black voice to sing about the, the movement? And I felt the self-conscious fear because I saw a lot of cancel culture. I was like, I... I don't know. I don't know how to say this uh, without, I don't want to cause harm. So I had two choices to make, not cause, like to play it safe and not share this with anyone or accept that I'm going to make errors along the way or, you know, I'll try my best not to, but I'm not going to do this perfectly, but I'd rather sing something than not, you know, and if it's come out of me, I was like, okay, well, I have these verses and I'm singing about black lives. I don't have a full perspective of it. So I brought the verses to my co-writer who wrote, if I ruled the world with me, his name is Adio Merchant. He goes by bipolar sunshine is his artist name. Mm. So I messaged him and I did a, one of those Instagram voice memos and I sang yes. the verse and I was like, I sang it into the message. I was like, okay, so here's, here's an idea. And I was like, if you have bandwidth or interest at all, don't feel pressure. There's so much going on, but the song's coming through me. It's bigger than me. Um, and I, I want to, I want to hear your perspective on this. If you want to do that, if it feels right to you, he didn't respond for like a few days and it felt like years. Mm. Cause I was like, Oh no, did I cause harm to my friend? I'm overtaxing my friend and messaging him. And and I had to face all my stuff. Like all this stuff brings up my people pleasing, my fear of being wrong, like my perfectionism, like all of that. Like, especially as Asian Americans, there's a lot of like fear of, of, of losing face. Yeah. Losing face and, 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 you know, 
causing harm and saying the wrong thing. There's so much pressure in being excellent, right? And I, but he did message me back and I had to acknowledge, okay, I definitely have my own stuff to work on because the few days he didn't respond, I was really scared. He replied and we ended up finishing the song. Um, and then I'm, I'm, I'm inviting in other creators, um, people of color, black creators, and asking them if they find space if they find themselves in the song and if they want to collaborate with me. So it's a lot of like me offering uh, some of my art and my energy and then collaborating with them. And I think it's symbolic that I didn't just go to Bipolar Sunshine and say, hey, can I just write a song with you? Like it was, this is, this is what I've come up with. I've done some, I've done some work here. Here's some energy if you want to collaborate, let's do it. And so it's not like, you know, how people say, don't ask, don't ask the people who are oppressed on how to solve the oppression. Right. And so it's a similar thing as like, if we want to be part of the, the fight against um, racism is let's do some work on our own, do some research, come up with some stuff and offer. And they might not need it. You know, I might release a song and people are like, that's nice, but we don't need it. Cool. But at least I'm trying and, and, and the process of releasing the song has, has opened up a lot of conversations with um, other creatives. Like the music video is going to be told through the perspectives of um, Black storytellers from Memphis who have directly experienced losing people through systemic racism. Mm -hmm. So I brought them an idea and they're like, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want, I was thinking of, um, doing a collage of the, you know, movement and what's been going on. They're like, we've seen that, like, and we don't want to see some of these images that trigger us. Like we want to create something of our own. So we went from like, I wanted them to consult with me and make the video with me to, why don't you tell the story? Let's, and they want to do a narrative video. And so they've written a beautiful piece that is a collection and kaleidoscope of all their intimate stories that they hold about their own experience. And so I get to witness that, you know? So I don't know. I think it's a, and who knows, we're all learning as we go and it just is more communication. Just, I think the solution to, for me, one of the, not even solution, one of the tools to take into a more, um, sensitive conversation about race is nuance just taking the time to use thoughtful words and to use more of them to explain the intricacies of a feeling um, and then um, listening. So, yeah, I actually would love to play it for you. Do we have time? Oh, we can play it if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I can just perform it. I have Thank all you. stuff set up. I, I love it. I didn't expect to get a performance out of you, but I'm honored. Why not? I'm having a blast. Let's do it. Uh, okay, let's see if this can, can you hear that? Yes. Okay. She was somebody's daughter, somebody's friend, someone who built her dreams with every breath. Others could have been more than a number, more than a story, 
more than a memory somebody's friend somebody's daughter somebody's beloved blood on leaves falling like autumn our story's been told a thousand times why doesn't everybody scream for anyone listening? Say her name. Say her name. He was somebody's father, somebody's son. Someone who dreamt of seeing his daughter grow taller and fall in love. More than a number, more than a story, more than a memory. Somebody's son, somebody's father, somebody's beloved. Blood on leaves falling like autumn. The story has been told. Why doesn't everybody scream for anyone listening? Say his name. Say his name. More than just a number. Say. Somebody's first call, somebody's home, someone who lived with tears and laughter, who wanted to belong. More than a number, more than a story, more than a memory, somebody's home, somebody's first call, somebody's beloved, somebody's first call. Mm, thank you so much so oh, beautiful i did not expect it and this is such a treat to see you perform mm. this new song and oh my goodness thanks for listening thank you and also with the impact of the of the Black Lives Matter movement, have you had these discussions with your own family about anti-Blackness and color, colorism in our community? Because I know this is a very difficult topic for the Asian American community to confront. And I mean, for myself personally, I feel like I've had to have a lot of these difficult conversations. I have relatives who are Trump supporters and I have uh, former friends of mine that uh, 
at the same thing too. So how have you been able to navigate these very difficult conversations with? Um, yeah, I've had uh, a couple of them and they've been really interesting. I think arming ourselves, not arming is the wrong word because it seems so combative, but um, empowering ourselves with some tools with information is really helpful. So like with my mother, um, we talked about it and you know, she has her own opinions and she had her perspective and she, um, she and I discussed, um, the fact that black activism, uh, was, is a reason why we're able to immigrate to the United States in 1965. And, you know, Kathy Park Hong talks about it in her book, Minor Feelings. And my friend Ari Afsar, who's a Broadway singer, uh, she's South Asian, um, we we had a discussion about this is that the the activism that the black community did um in the 60s led by mlk and john lewis um really allowed us to to come back to the country you know and um and so i think my mother hearing that helped her process like you know there's a sense of connectedness you know i think there's a fear from immigrants th that, you know, they don't want to be at the bottom of the totem pole. And so everyone's trying their hardest to climb to the top. And if in that effort as immigrants, if we're climbing to the top, what we're climbing towards is a system that's already built on oppression. And we're just, we're, con we're solidifying um, the oppression on our black and brown brothers and sisters. And um yeah, I think that was, you know, she's like, well, oh, I didn't think about that, you know, and I don't know if that changes her mind, but she knows where I stand and we had a, we were able to have a, a civil conversation about it. And because I did work in researching and learning and I still have so much more to do, I had some information to provide her in a conversation, you know, mm. and yeah, and um, I think also just allowing for people to express their opinions without shaming them has been another thing, you know, another relative, you know, said pretty hesitantly, like, I don't know, I just don't know how I feel about the looting, you know, and, and I had to, I, I had to breathe deeply and not judge and not, and I, I also know that person and I know that what she was saying was coming from a loving place. Um, and I didn't shame her. It was more, asking questions, also sharing my opinion and, you know, kind of telling her the, you know, the perspectives I've heard from um, black activists talking about how if a system is not, doesn't feel like it's built for them and continuously uh, disappoints in them. And, and it's almost like it's an abusive relationship. Right. Uh, and, and we can't condone that type of, we can't ask someone who's getting abused to ask them to follow the rules of the abuser with and expect them to follow them so cleanly. It's just, there's, there's so much more to unpack in, in the question of looting. And so, yeah, it, it was, it was, a I could tell it was like a conversation that felt a little tense, but we got through it. And I think it helped her, helped her open up and feel safe to talk to me about other things. And so later she texted me to ask about any black organizations that um, 
she felt like that I, I believed in and that she could donate to. And so, you know, people, I think people are willing to learn. I think it's just when we do the aggressive conversations, the, the bridge, the possible bridges that can be built get burned way too quickly. So I think that's why I like to meditate is so I'm less reactive in conversations and I can breathe through it and kind of like see it from a bird's eye view and be like, okay, what's the most like calm and bridge building way to react to this right now? You know? Yeah. It's an everyday practice to deescalate and to, to be, to also be very thoughtful, but also understand your own privilege. And also when we're talking with our parents or families and, there's a different level of education involved. There's language barriers. I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, this is not something that happens overnight. You're not going to get them in one conversation. These are gradual conversations. Sometimes you may be successful in having these important dialogues. Sometimes it, it, it becomes lost, but it's important to think about how we have these conversations and how do we exercise compassion and mm-hmm. understanding of why there are folks in our community or within our family that have these feelings or these uh, biases. Um, mm-hmm. And when you mentioned Kathy Park Hong, I'm very excited that you bring her up because I am a huge fan of minor feelings. I was so blown away by that book and, and I have, I'm so honored to have her on my show. And, you know, there was one part of the book and this kind of reminds me of the anti-Asian racism that's been happening this year in the wake of COVID-19. Uh, during the time of Trump's election, I think it was page 78, where she said uh, that the election of Trump brought back memories of her childhood, unpleasant memories of her childhood when we were made fun of, of our Asianness, our foreignness. And we are reliving those moments of what that felt like. And during the time of COVID-19 and the anti-Asian racism that was going on, did you feel personally affected? I mean, I think we all, I think maybe I'm going to rewind this one back. Many of us have been uh, affected in one way or another with COVID-19 and the anti-Asian racism, but uh, how do you think that has affected you as an artist and as an Asian American person? Mm. the um anti-asian sentiment that is rising because of COVID-19 um is very educational for me um it tells me that our society is still very broken and very and a lot of people are hurting and that we need more tools in the community to, to educate people how to heal their own wounds so that they don't project it onto others. Um, I know there's a philosophy that there's two types of people and, you know, this is a generalization, but there are those who blame others and those who um, take responsibility onto themselves. And so um, I think I'm, I, I don't take it personally but I also know that it is very dangerous and harmful. Um, and I worry about my brother walking on the streets. Um, I was driving across country going from Los Angeles to Boulder and I had to stop in a midtown and I saw a lot of, you know, um, keep America, uh, what was it? Make America, Make America keep America. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
and I had to stop. Um, and I felt nervous. I was, and I was wearing a mask and I was wearing a hat and, you know, I have, I have like dyed hair, but you can still see my Asian-ness and I, I was a little concerned. So I could, I can feel a sense, a sense of, uh, cautiousness that was not there before the COVID-19 virus. And I feel like it's a good tool to remind me of how much work we have to do um, uh, to build more love into our societies. And it also brings me closer to um, my, my Black brothers and sisters who go through elements of this all the time, you know, and it's an interesting journey for a lot of Asian Americans where a lot of us during this COVID-19 quarantine, we're finding our voices of, of activism. You know, a lot of people are speaking up, hate is a virus. My friend Michelle Han, Hanabusa um, from Uprisers created this campaign and you could see a lot of Asians standing up for themselves. And then George Floyd happened and then we had to take a moment and be like, oh, there's a, there's a context within all of this and we're all so connected. And our work to fight for Asian um, American rights is incomplete unless we fight alongside our black and brown um, brothers and sisters. It just, it just is a great reminder that we gotta, we gotta look beyond these man-made divisions that we've created uh, amongst all of us who are people of color and people who are. Um, disadvantaged in some way in this white patriarchal society like it's working if we start pointing fingers at each other like the powers stay in power if we don't if we try to take the power away from each other so it's very inspiring now to see that we are learning um, as an Asian American culture to reach out to other other people and of other heritages to combine forces I, I'm not sure if you're seeing that, but I'm seeing more of that and it's really powerful. I think this mm -hmm. is the next this is the next step we need to take is understanding where we need to join forces. And I think that uh it's so timely that you released your EP earlier this year, uh, into gold. And it's a five song EP which has songs like If I Wrote the World Gold and I, I'm kinda of blanking on the other songs off the top of my head here but I did see the five piece video yeah. it reminds me of like Beyonce's Lemonade in, in some ways and oh, it cool. takes you on this journey of heartbreak mistrust self-empowerment desire for social change and if I wrote the world was like this exclamation point and, and I love that headpiece in that video by the way and, oh thank you yeah and what was uh what was that journey like creating this particular EP and and also how has this connected in this important movement that we're in or movements? Um, yeah, the music video was a collaboration with my director, Millicent Hales, and she thinks very visually. So she took the album home and listened to it and then the EP home and she listened to it and came up with visuals that she just happened to pull up that made her think of it. And I saw the visuals and I started making it into a story. I was like, oh, this is telling a story of a woman who, um, you know, is living in this world where people hide their boxes of tears. And, and so mm. she's going to bring her box of tears into the light. And then, you know, and, and so there's a whole journey where 
at the end it um, culminates into the queen um, and learning that the best way of ruling is actually to submit to love. And I wanted to have a queen who's wearing um, an Eastern style crown sitting on a Western style throne because that's my heritage. It's like that mix of cultures wanting to acknowledge them both. Um, and ultimately she surrenders to the land because she knows that what she does, her actions lead to what kinds of flowers bloom for the next generation. Um, and really it was my way of protesting what I'm seeing with Trump and um, with our government. You know, it's not just Trump. I, I like to also say it's the whole, the whole cabinet that supports this and is complicit uh, beside him is, is much to blame for this as well. And so for me, I wanted to, I wanted to insert images into the media of a ruler you know, submitting to, to the land and wanting to remind people that these people that are ruling class are also mortal. You know, they're just like us, um, but they just had a positioning of power. And, you know, it's an intense way of me saying we're, they don't, they don't have to hold all this power over. Um, we have a lot of power as the people. Thank you for sharing that art. And I recommend everyone to watch the videos to that EP. I am, I was just really blown away because I saw the gold ball. And I, thank you for sharing what that, that box of water is, the clear box of water passing on to each woman. And I thought, I was wondering what that symbolizes. I thought it was symbolizing fluidity and, and our That's feelings. That's beautiful too. Yeah, yes, totally. And oh my gosh, do we need fluidity now or what, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, and also as we're getting very close to the election, what are you hopeful for during this election period? And what do you look to do should, God forbid, Trump get reelected or Biden getting elected? Um, I know that um, there's a lot of, there is a lot of fear right now in this country of what is going to happen in this election. How is this going to turn out? But are you mentally preparing yourself as an artist to think about what am I going to do as an artist on these responses? Because say Biden gets elected, we still have to hold our elected officials accountable. I think that's a very important part of that whole process. Mm -hmm. it, it, the mm -hmm. movements don't disappear completely just because yeah. a Democrat gets into office as we've <laughs> yes. been warned many times over and over again. But Good I was point. wondering what your level of, of um, process is as you're preparing. Yeah, I, I think that is a great question. I, um, I surrender to... I so basically right now quarantine has taught me to surrender. Um, the racial justice movement has taught me to surrender to the fact that I am privileged and also uh, a a recipient of racist oppression, um, and I surrender to the fact that I have a lot to learn. Uh, it's a lot of humility. So whatever I can do in my day to day life to progress. Um, a healthy, loving life is what I will continue to do regardless of whoever is elected. I'm going to vote. I'm going to ask others to vote. I'm going to do everything I can 
to empower those around me to express their truth. Whatever truth emerges for this country is I'm very, I'm very interested to see because like Obama said at the the DNC is that, you know, this election, if we don't, if we reelect Trump, for me personally, my biggest concern is um, our public lands, our, our um, environmental uh, resources are at high risk. And I, I fear that if we elect him, we will do damage that will be irreversible for this generation of human beings. Um, I also um, really worry for people of color. Um, uh, I... I also worry about the death of our democracy. This is this is how this is how dictatorships grow is when people are asleep at the wheel and so consumed by consuming. I think our culture has a big lesson to learn is that this capitalist system is not serving us. Um, this obsession with status and of making money and climbing the ladder has got us so busy that we have (laughs) we've been so focused on our own hustle that we have not seen that there have been these forces taking over the government but that's what happens right it's um these these uh parasitic forces will always try to take over if we're not cautious consciously protecting a sacred thing like democracy so I um I am preparing for both sides emotionally, both possibilities, but I am definitely hopeful and hopeful that people are going to go out and vote. Um I think that the fight that needs to continue is to get rid of this electoral college. Um and I think that we need to start holding billionaires response like accountable. I think I'm I'm very enraged by the fact that Small, small businesses have had to close for rightful reasons, but these huge businesses who have been empowered to stay open, it is almost unconscionable to me that these companies would not offer their earnings and increases in profit, huge percentages of increases of profit. Why is there not a CEO standing up to be like, we're creating a fund to funnel some of these resources back to small businesses. The fact that I go on amazon.com and I look at, you know, products skyrocketing in prices because of a demand because of a pandemic is the is the ultimate sign that our society is sick. Is we are ill. We don't know how like we are not operating from a place of love. If we are operating from a place of love, those products would be cheaper because we would know like, Hey, we are in a pandemic. We need to take care of each other. And so long story long, Randy, (laughs) um, is that, um, I'm going to vote. I'm going to do my part. And I'm also understanding that there is a lot broken within the society. Um, and it runs very deep. And so the work that needs to be done has to start within ourselves. we got to do a lot of healing, we got to do a lot of reflection as to why we hunger to buy, why we hunger to climb a ladder that was built by a patriarchal society. Um, and we got to face our own demons and our monsters and insecurities. It starts with us. So even if Trump gets reelected, 
I hope people continue to do activism, but I also hope that they're not pointing fingers because when we're pointing one finger out, there's three fingers pointing back at us. Uh, we mm. each have a lot of work to do. So, um, yeah. So regardless, whoever gets elected, there's just work to be done. So amidst the work, I, I'm going to make sure I go for walks and take bike rides because the whole point of us fighting for this is so that we can be joyful and be free and belong. And if we let these oppressive forces take away every bit of joy, um, that's them winning on a whole other level. So we have to fight and we have to find pockets of joy so that we can continue to continue to fight because there's so much work to be done. Thank you so much for being so cerebral and so thoughtful about this process and the journey of you as an artist, but also as an activist too. Mm -hmm. and, and also as I wrap up, uh, what projects are you currently working on and where can we find you? Uh, yeah, I'm working on the release of the Somebody's Beloved, which I played earlier. We're working on a music video and um, a website that uh, that will direct people to existing Black-led organizations that are doing the work. So I'm creating like an educational and activism website that is just mainly a portal to to just direct people to other people to other Black-led organizations. Um, and I'm creating some campaigns around the song Somebody's Beloved to hopefully bring more love into the world and hopefully allow people to reflect on the fact that these statistics that we're seeing of these thousands and thousands of deaths are, are somebody's beloved. So uh, yeah, I, that's what I'm working on. So you can follow me on Milk Music, M-I-L-C-K Music. Um, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I mainly Instagram. Um, so go there if you can. And YouTube, I have, you know, like Randy was saying, the music videos. And um, yeah, just uh, I think within the next month or so, I'm going to be releasing new music. So hopefully, yeah. Uh, oh, that is exciting. Enjoy. Oh, I'm very excited about that. And really, thank you so much for this important uh, conversation that we're having. And really, it's such an honor uh, to have you on the show. I cannot tell mm -hmm. you how exciting and how fulfilling this means to me. Uh, mm -hmm. Because Thank four you. years ago, uh, I remembered watching from my home, seeing that performance and watching your other performances of Quiet with so many beautiful women. And to see where this has taken you as an artist is, has been very beautiful. And I mm -hmm. wish you so much the success in your journey. And, oh, you too. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. Yeah, uh, thanks. All right, take care.